There is a theological truth that when it is grasped by us, provides hope and peace no matter your circumstances. That truth is God's providence. God's providence refers to his powerful care and his oversight of his people. His powerful care and oversight of his people. God watches over those who trust in him. He is, in fact, a good, good father. The Lord commands our destiny. Our lives are in his hands. No matter what we face in life, no matter the dire nature of our circumstances, God watches over those who trust in him. It is a truth throughout both testaments of the scripture, Old and New Testaments alike. God providentially watches over his people. And the outcome of that plan is ultimately his glory. God is working a plan throughout all history. And that plan is to redeem people who have fallen away from him in their own sin. He's working a plan, and that plan involves his glory and our good. Those who trust in him, those who become part of his saving plan through faith in the Lord Jesus, he providentially watches over them. I have found hope and peace in this rich theological truth of God's providence, particularly in these past few weeks. One of my favorite hymns is In Christ Alone. We sing it often here at Beacon. What I love about In Christ Alone is how it showcases the providence of God. Listen to the last verse of In Christ Alone. No guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. This hymn invites us to trust in the providence of God. This hymn invites us to rest in the reality that Jesus commands our destiny. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that Jesus commands your destiny? Are you at rest in his good hands? Well, this morning as we step forward in our sermon series in the book of Acts that we've entitled Church on Mission, we've been in Acts almost for a full year. We started in early September. We'll finish at the end of the summer, the end of August. Church on Mission we come to a passage that likewise showcases the providence of God, his protective care over his servant Paul, no matter Paul's circumstances. When it looks like Paul's life is about to be snuffed out like a candle, the Lord in his hidden hand intervenes and protects Paul and sustains him so that Paul can fulfill his mission. This text, like the hymn in Christ alone, invites us to trust in the providence of God. It invites us to rest in the reality 
that Jesus commands our destiny. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 23. Acts, chapter 23, in the Bibles that we've provided on your chairs, you can find that on page 932. Acts, chapter 23, page 932. And if you're here today and you need a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give free Bibles away. As you came in through the entryway, there are bookcases. The third one from the door, there are some black hard, hardcover Bibles. You're welcome to take one of those. Acts 23, I'll read verses 12 through 35. Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and Luke writes, beginning verse 12, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though we were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one what you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks letting the horsemen go on with them. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Here in this passage, we see human schemes and divine protection. 
That's the outline of this long passage. Human scheming, divine protection. In the midst of the hostility, in the midst of the plotting, in the midst of the conspiracy, God is providentially working, protecting, navigating Paul away from danger so that Paul can fulfill his mission, and that is to preach the gospel in Rome to the Gentiles. And the goal of this sermon is to foster all of our trust in the providence of God. If we as a people can learn to trust God and his guiding hand, no matter our circumstances, we will glorify him and we will be in a better state in this life because all of us know the onslaught of difficult circumstances. And if we can learn to trust God and his guiding hand of providence, we're going to be healthy and draw near to his heart, drawn close to him and in relationship with him. So that's the goal, to foster our trust in God's providence. We'll unpack the passage in two parts, human scheming, verses 12 through 15, followed by divine protection, verses 16 through 35. Now, if perhaps you're, you're joining us for the first time, I again want to welcome you. Our practice here is to walk through books of the Bible, alternating Old and New Testaments. And so we've been in Acts this whole year, beginning in the fall. We'll jump into the Old Testament. Um, if you've not been here for the last few sermons, let me just review how Paul got to this position that he's in 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 chapter 23. We see in Acts chapter 21, Paul's resolve to get to Jerusalem. He's been planting churches and visiting those churches that he's planted throughout the Roman Empire, Asia Minor, northern Greece, all the way down to Corinth, and he's heading back. He's collected an offering from all of those church plants all of those predominantly Gentile Christians, he's, collecting a, he's collected a generous offering to give to destitute Christians in Jerusalem. So he is bent on getting to Jerusalem to deliver that offering to encourage the saints, the, the, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. He's received all kinds of prophetic warnings of what awaits him in Jerusalem. You're going to be arrested and bound and delivered over to the Gentiles. He knew what awaited him. He knew that this was part of God's commission. Paul's plan of ministry involves suffering. So Paul ends up going to Jerusalem. He's arrested in the temple on false accusations. He's accused of seeking to rebel against the law of Moses and to bring Gentiles into the forbidden place of the temple, neither of which are true. An angry mob of Jews lays their hands on Paul and nearly kills him towards the end of Acts chapter 21. When the Roman authorities hear of this, the Roman commander, he's the tribune, he's a commander of roughly 600 to 1,000 Roman soldiers, immediately calls those soldiers to go and protect Paul. And so they protect him from, from the mob. And Paul has an opportunity to speak In the military barracks, his defense. He tells his story of transformation, how Christ has met him and transformed him. For Paul was a devout Jew, a zealous Jew who persecuted the way, persecuted Christians, those who followed Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Paul persecuted them. And on his way to Damascus, he was transformed as the Lord Jesus himself met Paul, saved Paul, 
and sent Paul on a new mission to declare the gospel. So Paul's saying, look, I'm a devout Jew who encountered the risen Messiah, the one that you've been waiting for, the one that you've entirely missed. He has come and he's transformed my life. Well, Paul speaks before a crowd of, of Jews and before the tribune, and at the end of his testimony, he speaks that he's sent to the Gentiles. And when the Jews hear that Paul is sent to give the message of the gospel to the Gentiles, the Jews no longer hear him. They say, away with him, away with him. Paul then is interrogated further by the Roman authorities, and there Paul reveals his Roman citizenship. And everybody backs off when they realize that Paul's a Roman citizen because you cannot condemn one who's not accused. And so everybody backs off Paul. The tribune, the Roman military commander, the next day seeks to know why Paul is so adamantly accused by the Jewish ruling council. So he invites the Sanhedrin, this ruling council, and places Paul before them. This is what Dylan preached last week. And it's this angry exchange where Paul is hit in the mouth. He's defending himself. He's calling them whitewashed tombs. And in the end, the the mob grows increasingly hostile. Paul speaks of his belief in the resurrection, which causes great division among the gathering because half of the council believed in the resurrection, the other half did not. And so it's this chaos and commotion that ensues. And once again, the Roman authorities, the tribune, orders Paul to be protected, apprehended. So what we witness here, in summary, is episode after episode after episode of hostility toward Paul. And if you're reading this, if you're just kind of working through multiple chapters in Acts, you're almost like, when is Paul going to give in? When is his life going to be snuffed out? If you don't know the end yet, you're awaiting Paul to just be extinguished, and that's it. His life is over. But in the face of all of this hostility and animosity, God is carrying out his providential plan. God is working his plan No matter what it looks like from the human vantage point, God isn't finished with Paul yet. He has a purpose. He has a plan. And nothing, no one can thwart that plan. That's the nature of the providence of God. It doesn't matter the human machinations against God. His plan, friends, can never be thwarted. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He's the one who says when our lives begin... And when they end, our lives are in his hands. And that's what we see in this passage. That's what we're invited to trust. Do you, if you're a believer in Christ, trust that your life is in God's hands? Your destiny is his. His choice, his protection, his providence. Nothing, no one can stop God's plan. Jesus commands Paul's destiny, and Paul trusts in God's providence. I want to remind you of a truth that Dylan preached on last week. At the end of verse 11, we read this. In the midst of all this hostility, the Lord Jesus himself shows up to Paul at night, knowing that Paul needs encouragement. And this is what Jesus says to Paul. Take courage, Paul. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, how are you receiving that if you're in Paul's shoes? 
oh, it would be wonderful for the Lord Jesus to show up and speak. But what Jesus is saying is even more wonderful. I am preserving you, Paul, and though it looks dark right now, you're going to Rome. And it doesn't matter what you face here in Jerusalem, you're headed to Rome to testify, me, to testify about me there. So understanding that word of encouragement is huge for the rest of the chapter. Because no matter what Paul faces, he can rest in the promise of his Savior. You're going to Rome. I'm going to preserve you to Rome so that you can preach the gospel there. Jesus commands Paul's destiny, and Paul trusts in that providential care. So human scheming followed by divine protection. Let's unpack this, this part about human scheming. So once again, verses 12 through 15, we encounter this hostility from a collection of, of Jews. Some 40 people are plotting Paul's demise, verses 12 through 15. Luke tells us, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and to the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Notice the repetition of this oath. These 40 people have bound themselves by a religious oath. They have sworn to God that they will not eat nor drink until Paul is apprehended and killed. They are dead set on disposing of Paul. The language here is just filled with Old Testament religious background, making an oath. It is a, a divine commitment to see something through, a dedicated purpose and plan to the Lord to see Paul killed. And the irony here is that these are devoutly religious people who believe that Paul is seeking to rebel against the law of the Old Testament. Yet in their zeal to protect the law of the Old Testament, what do they do? They disobey the law of the Old Testament. Commandment number six, the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. That's the essence of religious zeal gone bad. Jesus says of the Pharisees and the scribes in his day, you empty the law of its power. You, in fact, nullify it with your human traditions and your add-ons to the law. In their zeal, they ended up emptying the law of its power, nullifying it. This is exactly what these religious leaders are doing here. They are bent on disposing of Paul through an ambush, an evil scheme, lying in wait for him to take him by surprise as he heads back to the council to be further examined. The irony is thick in this passage. In their zeal to do away with Paul, they disobey the very law of Moses that they sought to defend. Well, more than 40 people are part of this conspiracy, and we see the, the nuts and bolts of their plan in verse 15. Now, therefore, you, they say, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes. So what's the nature of the plan? These 40 say to some chief priests and elders who were part of the Jewish ruling council who were accusing Paul, they say, hey, talk to the Roman commander. The tribune is his name. Talk to him and say, hey, we'd like to investigate Paul a little further. If you would just bring him down the street to where our council gathers 
We would, we would appreciate that. And what they hope to do is Paul's being brought down the street by the tribune and his soldiers. They're going to ambush him on his way. That's the nature of the plan, to lie in wait, ambush, and kill Paul by surprise. What these schemes do is walk in the footsteps of evildoers described throughout the Old Testament who lie in wait to shed innocent blood. So let me just give you a few examples. Psalm, verse, Psalm 10, verse 8. The evildoer sits in ambush in villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. Psalm 64, verse 2, a prayer of David for protection from evildoers. Hide me from their secret plots, the secret plots of the wicked from the throng of evildoers. And then throughout the Proverbs, notice this phrase, those who lie in wait to shed innocent blood. It's repeated over and over and over again in the Proverbs. Those who lie in wait to shed innocent blood. Friends, they are not on the side of God, and their judgment awaits them. So what the Jewish religious people were doing here, this mob, is just following in the footsteps of the evildoers described throughout the Old Testament who lie in wait in ambush to shed innocent blood. Yet with this mounting hostility and evil scheming, it's the Lord's plan that carries the day. It's the Lord's plan that prevails. Just when the reader of Acts 23 thinks that Paul's life is about to be snatched away, the hidden hand of God is seen navigating him away from danger. Here we see the transition from human scheming to divine protection. Let's look together at verses 16 and following. Luke tells us, Now the son of Paul's sister, that would be Paul's nephew. Paul's nephew, he hears of their ambush, and so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. As a Roman citizen, Paul has rights. He's revealed that citizenship. He has rights, and one of those rights are visitation rights. So we don't know a lot about his family. We know next to nothing about his family other than this verse in the New Testament. Paul has a sister, and his sister has a son, and his son hears about this ambush and tells Paul about it. Again, it's the hidden hand of God out of nowhere a means of protection arises by the grace of God. The plan is found out. Verse 17, Paul calls on one of the centurions. That's one of the commanders under the tribune. So the tribune commanded 600 to 1,000 men. And those men are then divvied up among centurions who would command 100 men. So it's just sort of chain of command. Tribune, centurions, and then soldiers underneath them. Paul calls one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? Now I want you to focus on the tenderness here. This is a military commander who kindly takes this nephew of Paul by the hand and says, come here, son. I want you to tell me, and I'm listening very carefully what you have to share with me. Where is this coming from? Friends, it's the favor of God providentially working, protecting Paul. Come here, son. I want you to tell me exactly what this plan is. 
And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Why does he swear this nephew of Paul's to silence? Because, friends, he wants to be, make absolutely sure that word is not going to get out that he knows. He's going to foil the plan of the Jews. The tribune then calls two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. I don't know a lot about military things, but this seems like an overkill response for this itinerant preacher and church planter, Paul, who's been arrested by the Jews. The tribune calls half the military force in Jerusalem, half the military force stationed there. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, that's the cavalry, and, and 200 spearmen. That's like just half the military force to usher Paul up to Caesarea to Felix. Why is the tribune exercising such military care, deploying such force? Because his job is to keep the peace in Jerusalem. That's what he's accountable for. And right now, Jerusalem is at kind of a feverish pitch because of the proclamation of the gospel and the animosity towards Paul. So the strong military response is because of the boiling point that's being reached because of the gospel going forward and people's animosity towards Paul. That's the strong military response. And so the tribune then writes this letter to Governor Felix accompanying these soldiers and Paul. He says, Claudius Lysias, that's the name of the tribune, to his excellency, the governor Felix, who's in charge of all the area of Judea, Palestine. His name is Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came up upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and de desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him. I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Notice the tribune's declaration of Paul's innocence. This should remind you, a Roman official declaring the innocence of one who proclaims the truth of God. Jesus was responded to by the same way. What did Pilate say of Jesus? I find no guilt in this man. And in the same way, Paul's walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Roman authority after Roman authority from this point on all the way through the end of Acts chapter 28, they declare the innocence of Paul over and over again, just like Pilate did of Jesus. So Paul is walking in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus. I find no fault in this man. The echo of what Pilate said to Jesus. 
Well, the tribune's orders are followed. Verse 31, the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. So from Jerusalem to Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean coast, it's 62 miles. This city is roughly halfway in between. It's about 30 miles in. That's a hearty, that's a hearty march for a group of soldiers in the middle of the night. They left at 9 p.m., likely got there early in the morning, some 30 miles to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. So most of the Roman troops head back to Jerusalem, but the cavalry, the 70 horsemen, they go on with Paul to Caesarea. And when they had come to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor. They presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked Paul what province he was from. Why does Felix ask him what province he's from? Because Felix is trying to figure out, does he have jurisdiction over Paul or not? Well, he does. Paul's from Cilicia. That's part of Felix's jurisdiction. So he agrees to hear Paul's case. He says in verse 35, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. What is Herod's praetorium? That's King Herod's headquarters where Felix, the governor, would have resided as well. Paul is being kept in close proximity to the Roman authorities. See the favor of God extended to Paul. God is providentially protecting him, extending favor to him, the hidden hand of God watching over Paul. Just let that guide you as you read I want to challenge you to read the rest of the book of Acts this week, 23 through 28, the hidden hand of God guiding Paul away from the Jewish mob before authorities, giving Paul an opportunity to preach the gospel before these crowds, protecting him in the midst of of a shipwreck, a disastrous shipwreck, protecting him from a snake bite on the island, and ultimately getting him to Rome. You see the hidden hand of God guiding Paul to his appointed place of proclamation. God's purposes will never be thwarted. You can take it to the bank. We see human scheming here, and then we see divine protection overriding those human schemes. Friends, we can trust in the providence of God no matter what we face in this life. His hidden hand is guiding us, accomplishing his good purposes. Believe it. Rest in the reality that your destiny is in the hands of your Lord. Trust in him. David in the Psalms walks also in the footsteps of Paul. Before Paul did, listen to how David trusts in the providence of God in the midst of danger. Psalm 64, David says, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers, who wet their tongues with swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose, They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking who can see them. They search out injustice, saying we have accomplished a diligent search. For the inward mind and the heart of a man are deep, but God shoots his arrows at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin. 
their own tongues turned against them, and all who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears, they tell what God has brought about, and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord, and take refuge in him. Let the upright in heart exalt in the Lord. What do we see in Psalm 64? Friends, it's a journey of despair. David is being attacked. Evildoers have their sights set on him, and he cries out to the Lord. He says, Lord, you see their schemes. Hear and intervene. And in the Lord's timing, what does he do? He hears, and he intervenes, and he thwarts the purposes of the wicked, and he preserves his servant, David. And in the end, David worships. David worships. What ought to be the result of trusting in God's providential care. Friends, at the end of the day, it's worship. It's worship, exaltation of God for his goodness and his care. I want to be very careful. God's providential care does not mean physical protection in all cases in this life. God's providential care means that he is keeping watch over our souls. And though our bodies may be taken in this life, there is no one that can snatch our souls away from him. He does, in many cases, provide physical protection. But don't read into this passage physical protection in all cases. He happened to do that for Paul here. But some three or four years later, Paul's life is going to be taken from him in Rome. His providential care is a spiritual oversight. It's a spiritual care. And we see this in the life of the Lord Jesus himself. God's providence is in fact displayed in not protecting his son from a likewise angry Jewish mob. God carried out his redemptive plan by not protecting his son physically because that was part of the plan to redeem us spiritually. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Peter says, this Jesus, he's speaking to a group of Jewish pilgrims, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. You see the interplay between divine sovereignty, human responsibility. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. So God is active, even in the, in the evil schemes of man, to accomplish his good purposes. Believe that. Believe that. On your darkest day, when your life seems to be falling apart and you're asking God, how could this be good? God has the power to bend evil to accomplish his purposes. And that's what he did at the cross. Jesus was delivered up, killed by an angry group, hostile to him. It was part of God's providential plan to redeem you and me today and to glorify God. This is the lavish love of God extended to you. Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of that lavish gift of love. And I, I ask you this morning, have you trusted in Jesus Christ as a gift from God to save you from your greatest enemy, your greatest foe, 
is not a physical one. It's a spiritual one, and it's sin. Jesus has saved us from our sins by dying in our place and rising again according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Will you receive this gift of God in Christ by faith? Will you trust in Jesus and be brought in as a part of that redemptive story, that redemptive plan? This morning, we remember and we celebrate God's providential plan of sacrificially giving up his son by celebrating the Lord's Supper. Here at Beacon, we celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month. That is today. In these moments, we remember, we savor the work of Christ on our behalf. His willing offer of his body, the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood, the punishment he endured in our place so that we could be forgiven of our sins and spend eternity with him. And so in a few moments, I will lead us in a time of, of celebrating uh, the Lord's Supper. If you're here today and you are a believer in Christ, I invite you to take uh, the bread and the cup and, and join with us. If you've not come to trust in Jesus, I encourage you to abstain. But in these moments, consider what the bread and the cup represent. Christ's body broken for you, his blood shed for you, that you might come to trust in him. Let's pray as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace to us in Christ. I thank you for your word that reveals Christ to us and his saving plan. God, I, I thank you that you are working even in the dark places where we don't see your hand. God, I pray that we would trust in you. No matter what our circumstances suggest, we would be drawn close to you. We would grow in our faith and our love for you. God, I pray for some who are walking through great difficulty this morning. I pray that they would draw near to you by faith, that they would know your goodness, that know that you're a good father and that you are working a plan. And that plan involves them calling out to you, trusting in you and in your provision of your son, Jesus. God, I pray that you would ready us now to celebrate and to worship you through receiving the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.